Welcome, everyone. Yes. I'm Susan Shatter, the president of the National Academy, which is an honorary association of artists, a museum, and a school. And if you would like any more information about us, there's a table back there filled with brochures. Uh, the review panel in its third season is a collaborative effort between the National Academy and Art Critical. The funding for the panel is provided by New York State Council on the Arts, the Daedalus Foundation, and the Edith and Herbert Lehman Foundation. Our moderator tonight and is David Cohn, and I'm going to introduce you, tell you about him, and then he will introduce the panelists to you. David uh, doubles here as the moderator. He's also an art critic and contributing editor at the New York Sun. He is editor and publisher of artcritical.com. And he is gallery director at the New York Studio School. I'd also like to give a thanks to Graham White, the sound engineer, and Christine Widmer, our education director. Expecting a controversial evening, David? Well, one can never guarantee controversy because uh, it could be a, dis a sign of distinction in, in a very distinguished lineup of critics that we achieve consensus on everything through the sheer power of our reasoning and the, the good nature of our objective gaze. Uh, but uh, time will tell. So, welcome everybody. It's lovely to see a full house. So, um, please listen carefully and. Um, we shall attempt to enunciate our uh, critical observations. Um, what I'm going to do also is um, just make the little announcements that one usually rounds off a program with at the end, because what always seems to happen is that one is carried away with the sheer euphoria of the uh, evening and forgets to mention the uh, uh, tantalizing um, information about the next evenings. Uh, just to say, therefore, that on January the 19th, uh, the National Academy, uh, the National Academy's review panel series, um, is taking a little excursion over the river for a Brooklyn special to be held at uh, the Pratt Institute, uh, where confirmed panelists include Greg Lindquist and Jennifer Riley. And back here at the uh, on Fifth Avenue, uh, on February the 16th, a review panel special coinciding with the College Art Association meeting. Get here early to get your seats because it could well be a rather crowded evening. Is a review panel special. Uh, the guests will be David Gross, Carol Kino, and Roberta Smith. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this evening's panel. My guests from my left are uh, Stephen Main, artist and critic. As an artist, Stephen is represented by Metaphor in Brooklyn. He's a regular contributor at Art in America, Artnet, and Art on Paper. And as a curator, he is currently working on an exhibition forthcoming at the Aldrich titled The Photograph as Canvas. As an instructor, he teaches um, writing at the Fine Art Department at SVA. Deborah Solomon is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, where we marvel each week at her Questions 4 series, 
this evening the questions are for her, so a change of role. Uh, Deborah is also the author of best-selling books, Jackson Pollock, a biography, uh, Utopia Parkway, a biography of Joseph Cornell, and uh, forthcoming, uh, a biography of Norman Rockwell. Whether the trajectory of her interests reflects the development of her taste is uh, a matter we will no doubt discover. And it's not. <laughs> and um, finally, John Goodridge. John has the distinction of being uh, the first instructor at the National Academy Schools, who is a guest here on the review panel. Uh, John Goodrich, artist and critic. As an artist, he shows his work at the Bowery Gallery. And as a critic, he's a critic for the New York Sun. And uh, he had been a stalwart at the uh, Review magazine. And he is also a contributing editor at artcritical.com, the online magazine that I publish, where, where, incidentally, one can, after the event, hear the review panel, should there be some nuance that you had missed to, or wish to re-savor from the evening itself. Wonderful. Now, for those of you who are new this evening, and in fact, would you mind if I do a little straw poll, who is attending their first ever review panel? Well, that's a really exciting and healthy sign. Uh, it uh, shows that, contrary to some people's suspicion, this is not a private club, but uh, a public institution. Welcome to you and welcome to everybody. Um, I will therefore just run through quickly what our format is. Um, we are reviewing um, uh, a selection of shows that the audience has known about in advance and been able to go and see, hopefully. Um, the format of the evening is that we do a little PowerPoint presentation just to refresh our visual memories about the shows that we're going to be looking at. Uh, and then we discuss the show, then we do repeat that exercise, and then we take a little break in order to hear from the audience. It's the moment after the first couple, two or three shows. The audience has a chance to let off steam or pose some of their own questions to the panel, um, and then we go back to the, the last couple of shows. As in a, one slight departure from the norm, uh, hitherto we've always looked at four exhibitions, but this evening we were just... I was just, we were just bursting with uh, curiosity to look at two shows which are both of uh, figurative painters and um, therefore we've expanded the coverage to five. But to accommodate that uh, perversion, as it were, uh, we're going to look at the first two together uh, and uh, uh, in a funny way trick the system and make it seem like we really have four topics under view. Great. So the first exhibition that we're looking at this evening is, is that of Lucian Freud at Aquavella Galleries, which incidentally closes next weekend. So if you were planning a fifth visit, do it soon and cancel Miami. <laughs> and just around the corner from Lucian Freud is the first exhibition he's staging with Gagosian Gallery of John Curran. Well... Despite the fact that our, um, despite the fact that there's a question mark on the audio system, the National Academy is actually invested in a fantastic piece of hardware. I should tell you about uh, the National Academy is the first museum in New York to invest in a time machine that can take people back to the 16th century. Um, this technology is in its nascency, and consequently, there's only room in the machine for two. Uh, one of the people is, is the pilot, and 
John Goodrich has generously volunteered to be the pilot of this machine. But unfortunately, he can, he can only take one passenger with him. So you're going back to 16th century Florence. Uh, there are meetings scheduled with, with Leonardo and Raphael, and um, if he's free, Michelangelo. And you can only take one passenger. Are you going to take John Curran, or are you going to take Lucian or Lucian Freud? Well, I, funny, I hadn't uh, actually uh, prepared to, to respond to a question like that. Um, uh, I, I, could, I, I don't suppose I could go alone, could, could I? Um, well, uh, I, I have a feeling Freud might be more interested in company, but I think Kern might learn more, if that makes sense. Uh, I, I, Kern is such an irritating painter. He seems to me someone with uh, an amazing amount of potential, but he seems to... to Oh, okay. can can everybody hear? Yes. Oh, good. Uh, he he, uh, amazing amount of talent, but he seems to have very low ambition. It seems to me, he seems to have only ambition to be uh, to titillate people and to uh, uh, do this postmodernist thing of using ironic appropriations and putting together an image that way. Uh, so I might take John Curran, even if he was a lousy company, he might actually learn more. I think. Uh, but uh, whether we'd want to learn is a little bit doubtful to me, uh, judging by his, from his painting. Um, uh, I, can I respond? You, yeah. On the, did you want to say something else? Uh, already... Well, I could go I on, on. We're all going to say lots, so oh. why don't you say something? Uh, I, uh, I forgot now. I, I was going to say. <laughs> well, I have. No, that, I they're, that they're very different painters. I would much rather travel with John Curran, who's very young and lively. Um, Lucian Freud seems rather sour, particularly in his depictions of women. I never understand why they all look like they have skin diseases and cannot get out of bed. Um, and to me, I, I understand his mastery, but I just never warm to the paintings, especially this latest show where there's more encrustation on the faces than ever before. Um, and, and when I look at his pictures, basically, I, I don't know why, but I always hear bombs falling in wartime London. Uh, they're very European, and they belong to the European past, to me. Whereas John Curran is very, very, very much an American, in the best sense. Oh, uh, can, can I... Please, no, no, don't ask for permission. Oh, okay, okay. Well, well I, I don't feel he has to be American or European, really. Uh, and, and I have maybe very most old-fashioned opinions of all of anyone on the panel. I, mean, I think that uh, uh, I have a lot of respect for uh, Freud because he concerned a particular painting. It, it, it is a kind of a traditional style, but beefed up with these very uh, visceral uh, textures and images uh, which, which really make you feel almost voyeuristic when you're looking at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and of course, Kern's doing something totally different. It's really more of a comment about hit painting. Uh, uh, I, I, my enthusiasm for, for Freud is somewhat limited by, by the kind of painting he does, I have to say. I, I wish he was more traditional. I wish he did more of what Courbet does. Mm-hmm. had more of an expansive sense of, of gestures and uh, filled canvases uh, more with, with he, when he works. He tends to, to sculpt objects and he does that wonderfully mm-hmm. and it gets a very vivid effect. Mm-hmm. Stephen, if you Sculpt object, did you say? Oh, oh sorry? Sculpt. Object? Yes, I find it. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Freud, and I love the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it's an interesting comparison because uh, Curran seems to want to uh, to put it 
perhaps a bit too broadly, seems to like want to shock, obviously. And I think Freud is, is, uh, seems to want to surprise the viewer. And I think they're two very different things. In, in, every, in every one of those Freud canvases, there's some, some beautiful, surprising moment um, that arises out of, the, out of the way the canvas is put together, whether it's the, um, you know, the hand, the girl whose legs are spread, but her hand is coming, her hand is coming around. Her left hand comes around and peeks out from the side of her, of her hip. Just beautiful little moments like that. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I could list several, uh, which I will do if need be. But I, I, I just love um, the sense of, um, of uh, thinking in the moment that, that Freud brings to his canvases with Curran... <clears throat> My objections are several, but but one is that all of the thinking seems to have been done in in advance mm-hmm. of that first brush mark, I, which I, is boring. Well, I agree that the pictures are very cerebral. And going through this show, I I found myself oddly thinking of Jasper Johns, because his iconography is getting so mysterious. What does one make of the candle and the book, mm-hmm. and um, and of course the crockery? And they all seem layered with meaning. Um, the crockery seems layered with meaning. All, yeah, I mean, it pulls you in. It's I, Is it not I don't just see an it exercise as exercise in in technique. That no, definitely not. I mean, it's not about technique. A subject is obviously very important. Subject matter is very important to the work. Crockery, it's mysterious. You think you do think about well, why does somebody want to paint crockery in the way that you puzzle over the objects in a Jasper Johns painting. And then you think, well, crockery belongs to the European past. It's hand-painted like a painting. Um, in his case, there's never any food with the dishes. So you think, is this some comment about deprivation? Unless um, it's a rotten banana. Oh, that's true. There is a rotten banana, but not with the crockery. It's a not, different that's painting. That's what the candelabra is. Um, and the melon. So I, Don't forget the melon. I've, I mean, you do the meanings of these pictures are very cryptic to me. I, well, I'm not sure. They're not well, easy to read. They're really weird. There's a lot of weirdness there. And what I love about them, I don't want to ramble on. I just no, want to say I'm, quickly yeah. that to me, the paintings are very cerebral. I agree with that. I think they're very brainy pictures painted by somebody who, who probably knows too much about painting. He's in love with all the masters of the past. And he's thinking, what can I do? What can you do after yeah, Corbet and Goya and the painters he loves? And he's yeah. almost crippled by his self-consciousness. And if he had one ounce more self-consciousness, he wouldn't be able to paint oh. at all. Oh, I think he's crippled by overconfidence in a way. No, I, I, don't, I don't give him that much credit for his subject matter. I think it seems like a game to me. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I've seen crockery in painting, so I'll put mm-hmm. some in. Or I want to do this visual joke with the melon and, and the... The, the woman what about the books? How, aren't you a sucker for books and paintings? Uh, I just well, yeah. Are they, do they have this, the resonance of a Balthus reader? Are those the, the, the woman in bed reading? Does, well, in, in, in Balthus, we don't know what the book is, do we? That's, no. Is that Joan uh, Collins, by the way? Yeah, is that is in, in one of the pictures, yeah. and she looks slightly drugged. Well, she does. Well, she I, needs I, to be. <laughs> Yes. Well, I see the book maybe as a device. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a device to maybe keep us wondering a bit in terms of subject matter. It's also a device as a as a form in a composition. And the biggest beef I have with him and the way he's presented by the gallery and so forth is that he's he seems to be seen as an equal of some of the masters. Now I don't think he is. I mean, it seems to be maybe 
some minor masters, he actually mm -hmm. equals in terms of getting the, mm -hmm. the quality of volumes of skin and textures of cloth and so forth. Right, but these now are, you're talking about a different issue. You're these talking about the mm -hmm. hype surrounding him and the money. And you have to, I don't think you can hold that against an artist. You just well, have to no. forget about it what when you I, go I, into a gallery. No, what I really hold about him is he's more curious about painting, how she aspired to more things. And, and when I was seeing the show, I kept thinking what Matisse said at the end of his life, which was that he, uh, his goal was Giotto, or the summit of his desire was Giotto, and it turned out to be to find a, a modern equivalent would take more than one lifetime. Mm. And I don't get that sen sense of inquiry with Curran. He's fabulously successful at what he does, both, both in terms of his painting and in terms of his career, but I wish he aspired for, to, to more. I think it'd be harder to do to do more. Well, isn't, isn't that, I mean, that's a mode of criticism. Isn't there something very limited about criticizing somebody's aspirations? I mean, they're giving us what they're giving us, and I think we should really mm. engage with that. It, it, it amuses me, though, that in forcing a comparison of Freud and Curran, Freud is immediately cast as being a very a traditional, uh, because, you know, until Curran came along, Freud... Um, was often seen as sort of courting uh, entirely the kind of sensationalism that people are perhaps inclined to level at uh, Curran because of the way he, for instance, would, would paint his naked daughters, the way he'd paint uh, the proximity of a, a rat to flesh and so on and so forth, that, that this is somebody that, that Freud and Curran, different, radically different though they are, uh, are both in a way part of uh, a tradition of uh, male painters who enjoy... Uh, uh, forcing the equations of paint and flesh to some extent. Uh, John, you mentioned Corbet, and uh, it's interesting that he should come up because, uh, like Corbet with his uh, uh, L'Origine du Monde, uh, both Freud and Curran are, are, um, are very uh, taken by uh, the uh, painterly possibilities of the, the spread uh, legs of a female sitter. Uh, are, they, are they doing something radically different in, or are they doing something fairly similar when they, when they give us such a view of uh, the, the female form? Uh, I think they're up to something completely different. Um, I, I, uh, uh, with Freud, um, you get the sense that uh, he's working against the, against the, the likelihood that um, the, the genitalia of the sitter is going to be uns really the, f the focal point of the painting or, or the center of interest of the painting, which, because we're biological creatures, might, might be the case. But he sets, up, uh, enough, he sets up a lot of little devices within the frame that play off that, that, that become um, uh, visual equivalents uh, that actually... Um, Take over, take over the picture. But uh, Curran, um, I have to tell this story. I, I, I have to tell this story. I was, I was at the gallery the second time, and um, there was a Tony uh, East Side couple with a friend, three of them going around the gallery from painting to painting to painting, proclaiming very loudly their opinions on the painting. And they came to the painting called Rotterdam, sorry, the painting called Copenhagen. It's one of the three ways. That's the two girls, one guy. And they got into a really lively, lively debate, not very discreet debate, about precisely which orifice was being penetrated, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And um, it was quite a remarkable conversation to overhear. Um, 
and the gallery. And I, I thought, by golly, it's great, it's great that, you know, there's no one right interpretation, you know. <laughs> Art is wonderful. We bring to it what we bring to it. Um, but that's, I, I see this, the, the use of pornographic imagery as really a, a, a failure of nerve on Curran's part. Um, he's caricatured uh, women, he's caricatured gays, old people now, not to be left out, old people. I don't know why he doesn't really just go for it, you know, um, get some blacks in there, and Jews are always fun, you know. <laughs> And now we have Muslims to hate, so... What struck me, though, uh, as somebody who's never been a fan of John Curran, is that, uh, yes, he's up the ante as far as uh, erotic content is concerned, but there seems to be a very uh, conservative joy in the depiction of loved ones like his wife and his uh, child, uh, Francis, who appears in uh, at least two paintings, and possibly the third, I, I interpret the painting... 2070 of that old man, rather Rockwellianly, sort of sipping his tea and reading his book in the wicker chair as being a projection of his son in right. 65 years' time. Um, it, it seems to me almost as shocking to see Curran not caricaturing and, and realizing that you know there are certain people he doesn't really feel licensed to ridicule. On the contrary, he has a certain sense of relishing a desire to depict. And it seems to me there's a kind of interesting... I, I discern... You could say, oh, he's an opportunist with playing both. I, 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 my, my tendency is to be... It's not to, uh, to, to be mean in that way. And my, my, my feeling is that there's something kind of lively and interesting in the, in the sort of split intentionality in this painting, in this show, because some of the paintings are within the, uh, the, the bad boy, postmodern current that we know, but others... Um, quite apart from what you think about their use of technique and their degree of mastery, seem to just have a kind of tenderness. There are paintings that, if I saw them out of context, I mean, context is all. If one didn't see them sparsely hung in rich, uh, one of the most exquisite modernist galleries in New York, but, but saw them in a rather, so say, slightly cheesy realist gallery like I won't name any names, but some galleries that you might visit in Chelsea or Midtown, where cheek by chowl on a, on a sort of wallpaper, wallpaper not dissimilar to these walls, you saw one of those paintings. You would just stop and have a traditionalist moment of pleasure in a conservative painting, and it's yeah. odd that you could have that with a painter who courts controversy the way John Curran does. Deborah, do you have any comment I know, on that? Well, I don't see the pictures as being as sadistic and full of ridicule as you. I, I, I think that that he uh, is, is, if anything, undermining himself and saying, how do you paint a woman in 2006 um, when you're so aware of the past and when the, the masters of the past cast such a shadow and when you read so many books. I love the books. and the, I mean, I think that's really been underplayed. It's not just pornography. It's also the books and almost half the pictures. Um, when you know so much, because we read so much, so many reviews, and so many art <laughs> magazines, and so many art books. So many how, sex manuals. <laughs> sex manuals, too, right. Um, how, how, do you, how do you make a painting? And I feel like he's always asking that question, and, that, and that's where his sensibility is based, not in any, any superficial attempt to ridicule. Yeah. Well, could, could, I, could I say, uh, the, the, I think the paintings he tries least hard in terms of subject matter, the ones of his, of his child and wife, are, were among the best paintings. I thought one of his child was a terrific painting. 
and it was one uh, I went to the show uh, after being at uh, uh, what was it Goya to Picasso and it actually seemed to hold up uh, compared to some of those paintings right but that's the thing about Carton he's aware that he's an artist of great virtuosity he could do a Goya he could do a Courbet and the women kissing I thought are very Courbet like whereas one of the pictures of his sons looked like a Goya to me and, but he's saying, but you can't do that now. You know, well, it's like I, I, too late to make Goyas. That was done already. Uh, and oh, so, I, I, well, could, yeah, this I, is, I just so want yes. to add one thing. Well, I think we'd all want to comment on that, but uh, one <laughs> well, at a time. He, uh, he is uh, known to want to court or, or uh, develop an antagonistic relationship with his, with his uh, audience, with the viewer. This is uh, uh, brought out in the monograph. Um, and uh, he, he uh, you know, he, to paraphrase, he says he, he doesn't see the point of doing something that uh, he and the viewer can, you know, stand side by side and look at and agree is is a wonderful, but he really is uh, uh, a provocateur, I think, in a way. I think he's he's trying to uh, uh, make the viewer uncomfortable, make the viewer angry, and um, you know, his approach to caricature. Uh, certainly gets that done. So I, I think I think um, I, and I'd like to believe he's not mean spirited. That it's a that it's an art historical game. That it's you know the new the new caricature. But um, um, I think he uh, I, I think that's behind there. I, I don't see how you can be uh, do those do those paintings and not have some deep seated. Um, um, antagonism towards your subject. I'd, I'd really like to take up but Deborah and, 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 and for all of us to wait, think but about... Wait, what's wrong with uh, antagonism in an artist? No, Is there the any artist who's no, antagonism free? That's one of the most interesting free. things about, about his approach. I, don't, I, I, mm. I'm, I can, I can un-get with that, certainly. I, I would like us all to think about something that Deborah mentioned, and that's that, that he has the technical virtuosity if he wants to, quote, do a Goya, do a Corbe. And I want to know, really... What can it possibly mean to do a Goya, do a Corbe? Because Freud, Freud is a painter who consistently, uh, briefly upstairs at Aquavella, it came down a week ago, there was uh, one or two of his older works, a little show of one or two of his older works, including his transcriptions of Chardin's uh, schoolmistress. School mistress. Uh, so close copies in Freud's hand of a Chardin masterpiece, but done in a different medium in, in, in etching. So to me, there's a really fundamental distinction between a transcription and a pastiche. And it seems to me that um, uh, uh, John Curran is not concerned with um, uh, uh, translating uh, 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 the, the, the energy or the power or the charisma or the aura of, an, of a, an image of the past into an authentic language of the present. It seems to me that he wants us to have some kind of sensation of um, uh, a currently living individual's ability to... Uh, to use certain techniques as if they are sort of raided from a, uh, uh, a piggy bank. But that's no, the um, plight of, you just define the plight of the postmodern artist who well, has all these images in his head and thinks, uh, you know, what... But, I don't but, see but why the plight of an artist go... painting today is any different from, from Manet painting in the 19th century being aware of uh, several centuries of old master tradition before him. Because there are so many more images today. Well, but, but does it have to be a plight? Me have more to draw on. And I would think, in, you'd hope that uh, artists would be responding to what they, they see, you know, apart from, from artworks and responding to what they see on their palette and making sense of the two, I mean, combining the two in, in a, something original. And it's maybe hopelessly old-fashioned, but you'd like to think that any artist who's truly themselves will do something that's both part of their time and something uniquely their own, too. It's just in their DNA. Mm-hmm. So this whole issue of trying to be someone else or trying to 
echo another's style seems sort of beside the point. And in Kern's case, I think it really holds them back. Uh, it seems just kind of a game to me. Well, it's one thing if it enlivens the painting. I mean, if, if, if you know, uh, and I'm trying to think of an example and I can't, but if that process that you're describing enlivens the painting, that's, that's uh, self-justifying. But I don't think that it does in this case. I think no, these no, paintings are dead. And I would say, and, uh, not to sound uh, like a grump, but I don't know any current painter that could paint like, like Goya or Courbet. Uh, there's plenty of very skillful painters out there. But could, could Courbet paint like Freud? I mean, is, is yeah. it, are we really on a sort of diminishing scale where anybody yes. who's lucky enough to be born nearer to Giotto has got it made? Uh, well, well, anybody no, no, the curse to be born today is, is, no, no. is crippled? But it's so because silly it's, to make those comparisons, I, I think, because we can't judge in the present anyway. Oh, I, I, I mean, think you can. I, you, I mean, I, again, not to sound... This, this may sound old-fashioned, but I think uh, Courbet could do uh, uh, Freud if he wanted to. He might have to have a brain surgery or something like that, but, but, he, but he could because there's more happening in a Courbet than a Freud's whole expansiveness to the way he captures the, you know, the whole figure, the movement from a part to another. There's a whole sense of interval and scale. And, and Freud doesn't get that. He gets more of it in his little paintings, I think. So, so I, I, I know people say you can't compare apples and oranges, but I do actually draw scales saying Courbet is more interesting to me because of that. Uh, not to detract from you know, Freud's many virtuosities. Which, which the I'm funny drawing. thing is, though, that both Courbet and Freud, in, in my sensibility, what they have in common is that they're both actually ham-fisted. It's, it's amazing that, 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 that both those artists should now be put on a pedestal as uh, virtuosi, and, because with Freud especially, I have this almost Rilkean sense that he's, he's always a beginner, even though he's got this unmistakable Freud style now, and obviously there are tropes and clichés of Freudism, but notwithstanding that, the positive energy to be had from a Freud painting is kind of negative rather than positive. It's, 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 like, it's like watching somebody who's disabled running in a race. It's not this question, oh, look at that beauty, look at that virtuosity. It's, is he going to make it? It's, it's, it seems to me that Freud is actually all about the angst of being able to make an image. And, and Curran is really very much about uh, immediacy, fluency, and, and as somebody, uh, I think John has mentioned, this, this sense of, or was it Stephen, of, of the, the decisions being a priori. He's, uh, he's got the image pretty much fixed, and he's going to use certain techniques to get across a sense of mastery with that image. Right, and, the, and they're different. What I like about it is that there's, in every painting, there's, he goes about it in a different way. It takes you by surprise in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I just will cite the, uh, one of the two paintings that are called um, Naked Portrait, um, uh, there's a, a female figure that's stretched out from the upper left to the lower right and her head is really small and her feet are really big and that's not particularly surprising uh, but he uh, modulates the warms and cools of the flesh tone to describe volume like any figure painter does but in this particular painting he pushes the, uh, the, the chroma in those highlights and shadow areas almost to the breaking point. It almost looks like this figure, this, this, uh, the model is herself mm-hmm. smeared with paint. And it almost looks like she's painting a painted woman. They're, they're pushed that far. And, and that's exhilarating as a painter. It's exhilarating to see yeah, it's a that kind of painting. high wire act. You know? yeah, it's a wonderful painting. Yeah. But, and I didn't mean to say that every old painter is better than every modern painter. I mean, there's, there's tons of less good paintings which tend to be in the basements of, gallery, of museums but you can see them too in between the Rembrandts. And the Why do you think those. he loves painting rumpled sheets and rumpled rags so uh, much? Well, he has a special white, doesn't he? <laughs> Freud. Kremnitz white, yes. Yeah, and, 
and I think it gives this, this kind of silvery uh, quality. Also, also to some extent, you know, we get a painting. There's there's painterly relish in it. Therefore, he must love painting crumpled sheets. It may, however, just be that his way of painting entails this sort of uh, extraordinary uh, commitment on the part of the sitter to be there for a very long time, and um, and that the sheets therefore get crumpled. I mean, it could... and he goes through a lot of paint rags. He does, with each yes. Picture. Yes, and they're avowedly uh, anti. Um, uh, Metaphorical or anti-allegorical, I think. Well, they, they, he, they're avowedly, but do we have to take him on his word? I'd like to think about that well, image. I was going of to the, connect the, him yeah. to Perlstein, who uh-huh. says basically the same thing. Uh-huh. Yes. And it's increasingly difficult to believe that those paintings yes. are not allegorical. I, I see them as both Perlstein and Freud in that respect yeah. as being hung up by certain orthodoxies of the period in which they belong, in which it was bad, it was considered naughty to be in any way illustrational, therefore you deny the uh, content of your work fascinating comparison to, to an artist of Curran's generation, right. for whom obviously that taboo is, is more than shattered. But it's fascinating to me also that you got in these two shows, Freud and Curran, very memorable images in each. The Freud of the, the painter startled by a nude in his studio, mm. and in the, um, and the, and the painting called The Danes in Curran, where similarly you have a, a younger person going down at the feet of a, an older person. In that case, it looks like an au pair girl going down on the mistress who's got some fur behind her. Um, radically different uh, paintings, but similar kind of um, possibly sense of allegory and uh, uh, some kind of... Uh, I mean, they're both painters working... I mean, if in a hundred years' time, people will, will look at those two paintings and they won't necessarily... I mean, they won't necessarily say, oh, my goodness, uh, you know, these are as different as Delacroix and Angra or Chalk and Cheese. They'll say, yes, 2006 was obviously the time when male painters had fancies <laughs> of uh, 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 girls uh, crawling at their feet. Um, uh, is there... Uh, yes. Timeless fantasy, actually, but uh, that's I, another matter. I don't know. The female nude is hardly new in art, so I don't know why you're struck by the presence of a female nude in one painter's work and another's. To me, that doesn't... There's very little connection. I mean, Lucien Freud is, is very much capturing the life of the studio, and you feel the air of London in those pictures. Yes. Um, the seconds passing or not passing, mm-hmm. whereas John Curran is pretty much painting fantasy scenes. He doesn't have these women for him. Mm-hmm. when he's painting, and he probably found them on a website for calendar art or whatever. Um, that, that, uh, so that, to me... Sorry. No, go ahead. I was, was going to say, say that, I, don't, I don't see them as being uh, so similar, except that they're both figure, figure painters, but well, very much separated by their nationalities. A standing figure and a kneeling figure, something very mysterious happening in an in a undefined interior space. But they're both very much defined by their moment. At the moment, mm. I mean, Lucien Ford is 40 years older than John Curran. And oh, well, you then feel it's defined by the existential factors of the makers, which is the opposite of the moment, because the moment's the same. They're both painting now. Right, but they're very much of different generations. Uh-huh. And, and Lucien Ford, again, is, grew up in a time of uh, World War II. And, mm. and you feel that, I think, yeah, in his well, work. Well, I think so. You, you, one thing about Kern, you don't have any sense of uh, conviction to me. And in Freud, you do. Also, he, despite, despite Freud's uh, uh, voyeuristic images, you do get a sense of respect, I think, for the model, finally, or respect mm. for lack of painting or... There's some respect there somewhere. But Did you say Freud's voyeuristic images? Uh, I, I find them voyeuristic. Which ones are voyeuristic? Well, I, I, I guess the ones 
which most explicitly ones that women spread open that a man has evidently looked at for about three hours a day for a year and a half, which generally qualifies voyeuristic, at least in my understanding of the term. But do you have a different definition of voyeurism? Uh, voyeurism to me um, implies a prurient component, which is not absent in those paintings. It's funny. I think there's been this little shift that, that uh, a new painter comes along who's even more prurient. So that they last, they last week's prurient artist is suddenly a, a paragon of kind of family values. It's, it's, um, well, I, yes. I'd have thought that there's plenty of voyeurism in both these uh, artists. No, no, it's I true. didn't say family values. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, on, I'm right. just ribbing you a little. Just Listen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, lady and gentlemen, I think we could go comment? on all evening about this. No, because... Uh, oh, yes, go on, of course. Yes. Thank you. The, the, I just want to talk about that painter surprised by the naked admirer, which is based on uh, Freud's favorite self-portrait, which is mm. the Courbet, you know, the studio allegory. Yes. Um, he was talking about, I was reading this interview, he was talking about Rembrandt and also about Courbet, and he loves that Courbet, and I think it's as simple as that he wanted to do something, mm. a riff on that particular painting. Right. You know. I think we're going to come back to this topic more and more. And um, I think even though we've only dealt with two of our five shows, it's a good, good moment in which to uh, allow, some of the, uh, allow the audience to share some, some views or insults, insights. Please do make <laughs> insults. <laughs> well, insults are welcome as well. Uh, we've got a, we have it's got a roving mic, and this, this is a very important technical point. As you know, we record these events. The, the, it's, it's wonderful to see a packed room tonight, but there are tens of thousands of people out there who, who are not here around the world who will be listening to our debate. So uh, wait for the mic to come to you and speak clearly into it, please, if you would. But don't let that stifle your comments. Lady here, yes, Miriam Brumer. Thank you. Um, no, there are two words, you know. Uh, one word is naked. And um, like Rembrandt and several other artists, there's a, 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 a nakedness about humanity which is portrayed as helpless and uh, kind of anguished and pathetic at times, and that's what I feel in Freud. There's also a nude, and a nude can be handled playfully and ironically and uh, without much commitment or conviction, but more to titillate. That's what I feel about Curran. I really feel in a hundred years they will look entirely different uh, for, with those two differences being the, a distinction. And could I say some actually Freud title that that painting, I think Naked Portrait, uh, emphasizing the, his subjects being naked instead of nude. So it was a portrait of a, of a naked body rather than a nude. Uh, behind, yes, okay, yes, yes, good, good, Alexi. Um, I had a bunch of quick things to say. The first is about conviction. I think that Freud's kind of conviction is much clearer and more obvious and simpler, but I don't think you're right at all in saying that... <clears throat> Corinne lacks conviction, conviction, I think he has as much, but of a more complicated kind. I think he has a conviction that his own ambivalence is important. Um, that's point number one. Two, I wanted to say that um, I think Deborah started to touch on the psychological quality of Curran's subject matter, which I think is totally right and super important, that there's a kind of manipulative, uh, complicated, again, ambivalent um, super cerebral thinking about subject matter in Curran that um, Freud is, is not interested in. Not that there's not subject matter there, but it's, it, he's trying to strip it away. In a sense, Curran is more Freudian. <laughs> Three, I was thinking of two things that we missed or that haven't gotten spoken about yet. 
and the most obvious seems humor. And I, I, I guess I would take it that people who don't like Curran share what I think of as a kind of inclination to underestimate humor as something serious and important, and if it's done with sophistication and complexity, a super high achievement, which I think Curran's humor is. And, and last would just be a question, sorry to say so much so fast. Where in their development do these shows find us? Yes, yes. That's, a, that's the, last, the question, the last question. I well put. Really, I thought that all was oh, very yes. brilliant. We'll all go home and leave the to <laughs> Alexi No, but the last question is a crucial one. It was one that I was hoping to bring up. Well, that's a silly thing to say because I didn't. But um, let's have more from the audience, though. Uh, wait for the mic, though, please. Thank you. I think, I think it's interesting that you've you zeroed on, you focused in on subject matter so much, and I think it's, I think it's Curran who, who for, forces the conversation to that. Um, I didn't hear any reactions to artistic quality or, uh, you know, um, except saying that Curran could uh, be Goya, which hurts me terribly. Um, I think Curran just wants to be, uh, you know, the zeitgeist of the moment. I don't think he has serious intention at all. And uh, Lucien Freud, you know, he was the L'Enfant Terrible 40 years ago, but he's, his oeuvre has shown uh, a dedication to his art, whereas the two shows I've seen in Curran just seem to say to me, I want to be the it guy of the moment. So, yes, lady here. Yeah. Uh, I have a question um, for Deborah. I think uh, you said that uh, Freud was uh, very European, yeah. and Curran was very American. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Well, thank you for making the point, and we will possibly all elaborate on it. Um, any more from the audience? Well, so she wants to discuss that that point. Okay, so you she's don't want moder- to discuss it. Uh, it's not that I'm. S- stifling debate. It's just that if a member of the audience takes the moderating role of asking one panellist one question. Mm. But go ahead. Please do. Well, this is a very interesting question, I think. I, me too. It's fascinating. Please answer. No. Okay. Well, uh, if we could, I'll answer very quickly. Good. Freud is European in the sense that um, he's looking back to the past and drawing very squarely and straightforwardly on the tradition of figurative painting. Whereas Curran, in his ambivalence towards the tradition of European painting, I think they both love it equally, but, but Curran, because he is so ambivalent, is seeing it all through this scrim of, of almost American skepticism of pop art and everything that has happened in the interim to make us question art. I feel that uh, it has nothing to do with being European and American. It has to do with being... Uh, of having a different uh, kind of attitude towards what the painting of the past actually means. And America has as much has a, has a past too. And it's uh, also those people living in America who are of European descent and who spent, or even mm. if they're not of European descent, but have spent their lives in museums filled with European art, are as much European as, uh, say, a Japanese person playing Bach, as is entitled to play it as a German. Um, for me, uh, it, it comes down to a, a difference between uh, uh, technique as something to uh, use or technique as something to borrow. Uh, I mean, whether it's a question of, of, of living paint or whether it's a question of uh, appropriating style, whether it's style or form. I mean, for me, um, Curran 
uh, Karen, it very much reminds me of mid 20th century uh, painters who um, uh, knowingly kind of appropriated old master technique, particularly the work of the Baroque and Rococo periods um, or, the, or the high Renaissance, and people who were phenomenally successful in their time, like Pavel Celetru or the, the Neue Sashlischkeit painters, such as, uh, such as people on the view at the Glitter and Doom exhibition at the Metropolitan uh, Museum. Um, and and that Freud is somebody whose um, relationship to the old masters is both more tangible and, in, in a funny way, more complex. Uh, because I think that, um, that, that there's uh, almost um, a sort of brutality in, in the relationship of Freud to many of the painters that he's looking at. It's, it's, it's a, sort of a, a deep awkwardness um, and a complete lack of fluency that, mm. su that, that suggests that T.S. Eliot's notion that in order to renew a tradition, you disrupt it. But um, yet, let's have more from the audience, and let's go back then to Alexei's crucial question about development. Um, I was just going to say that, you know, figurative, but one works from life and the other from not from life. And that, and that seemed kind of major to me, but, um, but also that in Curran, his painting is so straightforward that I never looked at it and thought, how'd he do that, which I do sometimes with Freud. So. Yes, um, I think there's, yes, yeah. You know, after seeing the Curran show at the Whitney, when I came to this, I was really expecting a very ambitious, some very ambitious work, and I didn't see that, and that's what I really wanted to see, at least one really ambitious painting in yeah. Curran's show. Which one did you consider the most ambitious? Did you say there was one? No, I, I, oh, I, one. I wanted, you know, after the last three rooms at the Whitney show with the Lucas mm. Chronicle, you know, mm. I, I, I thought it was getting towards ambitious. And I, I don't know, I wanted more, more complex um, figures together with, you know, something that really looked like he, you know, was really pushing himself. You know, that's, 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 that's in a way, that question is, a, is, is enticing us to answer Alexei Wirth's question because uh, Freud and Curran, these are, these, the, we, we all, I think many in the audience and certainly all of us on the panel, have, have seen previous exhibitions of both these artists and we've been comparing them to each other. But let's think about them briefly in relation to the, to the oeuvre of each artist. Um, uh, Freud, firstly. Uh, Stephen, do you, do you sense departures in this exhibition? Is this the old age style of somebody who's a modern old master? Or, or is this, is this um, more of what we're used to? Well, he's been so consistent for the last probably 25 or 30 years. He, there has not been a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, development. We, we kind of like <clears throat> painters, especially established older painters, to reinvent themselves once in a while to haul out a new, a new look. Um, and w the wonderful thing about uh, Freud, I think, is that he is... Uh, 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 he's so confident of his of his the vocabulary and so comfortable with the vocabulary that he works that he does that on a on a painting by painting basis in a much smaller way. So um, if you talk about the, the physical changes that are happening in the painting, the, the paint's getting nastier. Somebody mentioned that the impasto is piling up on not just the face and hands and heavily worked areas, but in weird places like the middle of the chest or. Mm -hmm. Or something like that. So I think um, it reminds me um, a little bit of um, Resnick in an odd way, who 
pursued some really um, kind of unforeseeable um, uh, directions toward the end. But um, I, I don't see, um, I can't imagine him changing, dramatically changing his, mm -hmm. his uh, um, overall approach. But I think the physicality of the paint, if I'm mm -hmm. to predict here, uh, the physicality of the paint, I think, is becoming more and more crucial. Uh-huh. I would agree that he doesn't have a late grade style, but I, I wanted to say that I, I saw some tenderness that I hadn't seen before. Um, and what about the, the backyard garden with mm -hmm. the shaft of sunlight falling on the leaves? Wasn't that, wasn't that a very tender painting and you for know, him? Pluto's grave. I mean, grave. what about these landscapes? Well, have they, has he done a see, lot of them see, before? He has done quite a few. But, well, he has on a few, I should say. And the, the, like, like this one, they seem steeped both in Dura and Stanley Spencer. I think he'd be happier with a former comparison than the latter. But they, it, it, it's a different, there's a different temperature and pace, isn't there, mm. uh, John, in, in landscapes than perhaps even though he takes his time with those naked figures, he's, he's aware of their, the, 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 the pulsating presence of another being with the, mm. with the landscapes, maybe with the dogs as well. Well, yeah, actually one of my favorite paintings was called David, no, Eli and David. David and Eli was another painting, which was the one with the dog in the lap and the, uh, and the David in the armchair. And I thought it really was a sense of presence, like his, the way his shoulders held in space. It really, mm -hmm. almost a Giotto-esque, uh, well, maybe not quite Giotto, but, but a real presence there. Mm -hmm. So he seemed to be working in a, mm -hmm. conceiving of a subject in a bigger way to me. I, the, the other one that was really different for me was the painter's surprise by a naked admirer. Because yes. there was a humor right. in there, which I never seen before, almost well, a vulnerability. Yeah. I think there's a humor, though, in those things like the artist and model, which depicted his uh, girlfriend at the time, Celia Paul, dressed and a naked model, male model on the couch. I think that there's, there's, there's often humor and in, in the parodies also of uh, uh, Corbet and uh, Vato as well. Mm -hmm. um, moving to uh, uh, Karin, I, I found that I was almost having some sort of experience similar to the one I had seeing the recent Lisa Yuskavich exhibition. Uh, I know there are overly frequently yeah. paired and like uh, Picasso Brach or Freud Auerbach, or sort of, sorry, uh, Kossoff Auerbach become heartily sickened of um, having to be uh, paired. But nonetheless, in my response to them, I found here are a couple of artists that for a long time I've had enormous difficulty with. And just at the moment when some of their original champions were saying, uh-oh, they're losing it, I was actually having my, aha, this, I, I get it, sort of experience. And I, I wonder if that um, both of them, in fact, but especially Curran, as I've kind of already intimated, that yes, he's upping the ante a little with sex, with sex and, 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 and the, the appropriations of pornography, but, um, and there's still quite a lot of that sort of Rockwellian kind of scenario going on, but in place of Rockwell's soft um, New Deal humanism, there's a kind of clever postmodern sadism to replace it as, a, as an equally sort of um, enfranchising, sort of a burgeoning middle-class sentiment. Uh, but what I like and what I realize that the champions of Curran don't like, and is therefore I think the departure on this show, is an, is an empathy and a kind of charming humanism that enters his paintings of uh, his family and and to my mind the, the real star of the show is the crockery I love the crockery because because with crockery there's no point in posing some some preconceived mannerist distortion or elongation there's actually just the there's the there's this almost tender 
awkwardness of an artist trying to deal with what's already a complex subject to get down. It's the slight lack of mastery in the depictions of crockery that give it a, a, a humanity that I appreciated. Where do you see uh, Deborah? You, you followed Curran very, very closely. Do you think this is his best show? Do you think there are signs of decline? Where, where, does, it, where, does, it, where does it fit? <laughs> I'm always reluctant to participate in conversations like that because it makes artists sound like horses and how, how, how is he doing on the racetrack? Um, but, I, but I do think that the expectations were very high for the show because it's been three years since its last one and he was switching to a gallery that, of course, is very visible um, and it means people are just that much more eager to dislike a show if you're at Gagosium because of all the hoopla surrounding it. And I, I think that he did phenomenal job of living up to the highest expectations. I, I loved the show, and I thought, I thought that, uh, that the paintings were um, less jokey. I saw less jokiness in them than in earlier work, more tenderness, and I thought they were better painted. Okay. And, and, and Stephen, do you have a comment well, on... Well, I'd like to where? see what he can really do with color. Uh, we hear about his technical prowess, and, and it's true that he is a phenomenally drifted, gifted draftsman, and that's what I find remarkable about that. The, the painting that's all crockery, I think it's called yes. A Heritage Hall. Uh, it's a bravado exercise in draftsmanship, but his color is so mediated uh, and so arch. I mean, I'd really like to see... I'd like to see him drop the, the pretense and, and really dazzle us Coloristically, drop the, what, the Max how is the color? Parish. How is the color arch in the crockery painting? I mean, it, it's not. There's very little color in the crockery right, painting. Yeah, I'm enjoying the draftsmanship in mm -hmm. that painting. But for example, mm -hmm. the painting that's uh, uh, it's the really cheesy one by the door. It's called uh, it's called Ripawam. Oh yes, the, the with the wine drinking couple, drinking wine couple. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a very local color of uh, Maxfield Parish. The the leg of the of the uh, pants, I think it's a, 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 like tints and shades of a single orange, I think it is, and his tie is tints and shades of a single pink, and her sleeve is tints and shades of a single blue, and all the color is very local, mm -hmm. and it's an illustrator's device. Mm -hmm. And, um, okay, yes. proven, you know, point taken, you can do that. But what can you really do? Okay, John, a last word on, on Curran's show in relation to his development. Uh, well, I don't know what it'll do for an encore. I'm sort of not really that curious about it. I'm sort of afraid to think. But I, every, every show of his, I really like a few things. And I, I, I guess my hopes from him are so different from his intentions. I, I just, the rest seem to me uh, kind of missed chances. So the next painter we're, we're looking at. The next painter we're looking at is uh, Fiona Ray, who's showing at uh, Pace Wildenstein, and something of a, a palette cleanser, if you like, uh, after all that heavy and heady oh, figuration. Uh, uh, some, uh, I'm not going to uh, say anything more critical about that at the moment. <laughs> no, it, it, what's interesting is that it shares, I, I just thought now, some qualities with Curran in the sense that it's cerebral abstraction in the way that he's doing cerebral Figuration. Um, it feels removed from direct experience. It's a, you're obviously not looking at a de Kooning, you're looking at something much more controlled. So the question is does abstraction really work when it's forced into such an a, a, uh, intellectualized mold? 
Is it more intellectualized than a Mondrian? Yes, I would say definitely. I, 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 like, I thought it was a pretty good show for her. I thought it was good. I, don't, I find I don't love the work. Um, there's all the deliberate cuteness, uh, the adding of flowers and hearts and the color purple all over the place. It's very girly. She clearly is looking for a way to move abstract painting forward. And here she feminizes it. And it, it all seems like some weird amalgam of things that you find on the walls of a, in a teenage girl's bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think one th- one problem is um, uh, not so much uh, the question about abstract painting, but specifically about about pastiche as mm-hmm. an approach to abstract painting. Um, mm. uh, she's got uh, all kinds of, um, as you mentioned, decorative styles, ornamental motifs. She's pulling from painters like Larry Pittman and David Reed and Lydia Dona. She, her references are all over the place. And then the question for me becomes: Well, where is what, what criteria is being used for, their, for the selection of these motifs, and where is, the intellect, where is the emotional core? If the painting is patched together through uh, uh, some process of um, uh, uh, affection that she feels for things, mm. is that enough? Is, is, is throwing the stuff together? And by the way, I do, have a, I do want to make a note about, about a formal note. Um, that they're really, uh, she kind of take, she makes it easy for herself in a way with uh, the way that she approaches her construction of the paintings using a, a unified, very often a dense neutralized gray or earth mm-hmm. color or purple, purple gray. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are, she seems to want to um, Make a statement about about uh, her her chaotic uh, her chaotic affections, but that unifying background is mm. almost is really fail fail safe fool, foolproof, um, and um, uh, it's it's it would be hard to throw something in there. Although I grant you, she tries with those little those little cartoon mm-hmm. animals. Yes. You know, yeah. it would be hard to throw something in there that didn't fit. There's a name really. for those, and I can't remember what they... What are they? Um, they're, they're, there's an, uh, Bambies? No, no, no. Uh, they're, they're particular th- kind of things that you transfer. The children collect them. Like decals. Decals, thank you. Thank you. They're decals. Oh, those are like transfers that you collect. Oh, my nephew likes them. Yes. So, John... Uh, Stephen brings up uh, chaos and unity. Uh, do, you, do you feel that it's that, that the that the eclecticism and the disorder is the, uh, uh, the 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 quality that you remember most from them, or you feel most when looking at them, or do they seem very uh, uh, orderly, even contrived? Well, a little of both. <laughs> uh, actually, this was a show I enjoyed the most, or I had the most analoid pleasure looking at of all, of all the shows. Uh, actually, man, what I wrote down was the show was that riotousness is an act. It's madcap, madcap and not unruly. Uh, so there's a certain engineered exuberance to it. And, and I understand she actually designs them in Photoshop in layers, yes. I think, and then makes them. But, but I, I do give her credit for being endlessly inventive within a set uh, uh, procedure. Mm-hmm. And I think she's a good colorist and actually uh, yeah. you know, uses colorist. all those textures in a good way. And some, some I like mm. more than others, but, but I actually felt she was consistent with her goals, and that was made it pleasurable to see. Maybe not the most profound painting you know, in New York right now, but I really enjoyed seeing it. Yeah, I think the first line of my review was, what's not to like about Fiona Ray? I, I, f- I feel that uh, uh, 
I followed her from the very beginning. She was one of the first of the so-called YBAs. She's the same generation as Hearst and uh, uh, Rachel Whiteread, uh, as far as as far as coming to critical attention was concerned. Seen initially as this kind of neoconceptual bad girl appropriation painter, but clearly from the outset and increasingly with show by show, uh, a very classical um, abstractionist, somebody intent on uh, optical pleasures. Um, and I, I don't. I'm surprised at Stephen's concerns about you know what are these images, where do they come from. They're, 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 as decals, they're really not images. They, they should be thought of almost as primary shapes, as colours or as uh, just uh, appropriated bricolage that, that that should be taken for its colour, texture, and just the lightest kind of uh, uh, association. I, I don't. I, I would agree with you, except that for the titles, which are so uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> Which you know, it's an important part of, the, of their experience of the painting, and they—I don't know what, where they're from. They seem to be from Japanese toys or something. That kind of super cute um, toy culture that's going on in Japan right now. Yeah, I, uh, I, I take it as part of the attitude. Uh, there's, there's no—it's uh, just postmodernist, postmodernist stance. But there's no uh, lots of implications, lots of suggestions, but no resolutions. Just sort of ideas bouncing about. So I thought, well, that, that, that's fine as long as she isn't. You know, it, it doesn't seem uh, as if she's pretending to more than she's uh, doing. Well, they have a kind of Eastern, you know, in a number of ways, a kind yes. of an Eastern feel. I found myself uh, thinking about Ikebana, as a matter of fact, as I was walking through this. Um, the artist was born in Hong Kong. Correct, yeah, yeah. But the, the one that, uh, that I kept coming back to was the one that's called Take Me to Your Nest. Okay. <laughs> And that's the one that was, uh, looked like it had been hit with a hose or something. I mean, it had a really nasty, crummy kind of crumbling surface, distressed-looking surface. And um, uh, it's, it's, as it was arranged in the gallery, the way I went through the gallery, it was the one that I came to last, as a matter of fact, because it's just to the left of the door as you go in. And I thought, well, you know, more of this. This is, this is oh, interesting. Yeah, now, that was my favorite painting. Relinquishing actually. control. I mean, her services are all about control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know... And she'd actually used something called architecture grass in it, which yes. I, I, I don't know what that is. Architecture it's the grass. grass that you use when you make a model for architecture. Uh-huh. Uh, you can have, get architecture's trees as well, if you are right, uh, <laughs> uh, which may be her, for next, her show. next show. <laughs> okay, that's her next show. And our next show, yeah, we're ready for, so let's dim the lights and uh, uh, press on. We're looking at Maureen Galace, who's showing at 3.03. I must say there wasn't a painting in this show that I wouldn't have taken home with me. Mm. This is really... But but once I got it home, I'm not sure where I'd hang it. (laughs) Might be the bathroom, to be honest. (laughs) They're gorgeous paintings. As I said of Fiona Ray, what's not to like? But um, it it seemed to me, Deborah, that it's kind of... um, Context is everything. Here here it is in in a kind of fairly cutting-edge, hip gallery. They're unframed. uh, they're, They're hung with about 10 feet of white wall between each one. Um, but if you saw the same pictures uh, nicely framed and triple hung at uh, one of the co-op galleries, you wouldn't necessarily say, oh my goodness, what are these poor, great, cutting-edge, conceptually rigorous paintings doing in this context? Mm-hmm. I, I disagree with that. Yeah? I, I find them to be incredibly seductive. I really love them, and I don't know exactly why. And that interests me, too, my inability to articulate what I love about them. But I... I think what's interesting is she, they're conceptual in the sense that I don't think she's working from direct observation. She's not sitting in front of a barn. She's painting her memories of a place 
And, um, and I, I just like the convergence of various things going on there. Uh, one is kind of nostalgia for this lost American past. I mean, mm -hmm. Barnes. It's, it's funny that Barnes should be so appealing to urbanites, but yes. she's tapping into something genuine there, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that she's remembering it, and there's, there's a beautiful haze to yes. the pictures. There's a light that feels like the light of memory. Um, and it's, it's like she can't, and they were a little bit blurry because she can't quite get there, uh, and she's not working from a photograph, or maybe she is, I'm not sure, but I, I just, she is working from photographs? They don't have that filtered feeling. She is? They do well, look very filtered to a, you? It's an authoritative, objective comment, which is clearly subjective. So let's decide for ourselves if we feel that they're working from photographs, if, if we feel that's an issue. Yeah. Stephen, um, did A, I have pleasures, never, and B, uh, are they hard to identify pleasures? Uh, are they, I'm sorry. Uh, if you have pleasure from them, are they hard to identify, the pleasures? The pleasures. I, I've never really understood the appeal of this painter. Uh, um, to me, they're, they're, I, I don't see them as beautifully painted. I see them as materially impoverished paintings. Uh, the surfaces are clunky. And uh, the, as far as conceptual, they seem to have more to do with um, access with a certain kind of privilege, a landscape of privilege, like they make me think of Fairfield Porter, for example, and that, and that uh, private island he worked on. Um, she's from Stanford, it's all about southern, her, all of her locations are southern New England, um, part of the world I'm very familiar with. Um, but it's Monroe, and it's Easton, and it's Chatham, it's not, it's sort of this, uh, uh, it's not working class southern New England, it's, it's the old blue blood southern New England and when I look at the paintings I see um, uh, barriers of various kinds. I mean I'm, I'm really digging here but I, I think what they must be about is access and about privilege and I see a, there's one that has a fence that goes across the bottom it's called Last Summer so a, a memory painting. Mm -hmm. John do you, right. do, you, do you feel that uh, uh, do you feel that when we're looking at these that uh, you're struggling with the subject or is it the form that's uh, is it just pure pleasure or is it an intriguing subject? Well I, I would get the pleasure depending on the form I guess with my own with a fairly narrow viewpoint <coughs> I, I like some very much there was one called Winter Farm across from the desk such a wonderful sense of light. She's actually putting colors together, a handful of colors, which really made a wonderful sense of the weight of light. Mm. I didn't like a bunch of other ones, and it was sad to me to see a whole uh, uh, tradition, which I saw Hans Hoffman doing and being re uh, repeated in painters like Al Kresch and Louisa Matthias' daughter, who actually composed a whole painting that way, feeling what colors do and... Uh, not only get a sense of light, but also a sense of large and small, and, and hmm. a sense of the importance of interval. So I liked some very much, and others, I was a little curious, they seemed a bit vague around the edges. It seems extraordinary to me that I share Deborah's pleasure in them, mm. but I'm, uh, you can knock me down with a feather when Deborah says she doesn't know where those pleasures are coming from, because they seem to me such well-received pleasures. Anybody who's who loves, as I do, as a foreigner who's come to live in this country, a whole American tradition, Fairfield Porter's name has been mentioned, very early Alex Katz, Edwin Dickinson, um, Rockwell Kent. Uh, you could carry on naming uh, 
uh, Wolf Kahn with the Barnes. This is, uh, it seems to me, awfully safe uh, taste. They're, they're charming and delightful with the way that there's, there's these gorgeously thin strokes, and then there's a creaminess, and there's a soft and del- delicate palate. Um, in a way, it's what, what gives it its cutting-edgeness, if there is any, is that like um, artists like Karen Kalimnik, who also shows in that gallery, and, and Elizabeth Payton, there's a certain patheticism in adopting such safe taste in making small, cute paintings that you think, either this artist is a complete ditz, or, or ah, yes, like Curran's sort of vulgar... Uh, like, like Curran, this is another way to, to shock us with the conservatism and predictability of the artist. Well, could I say the courage would lie in the way you approach your style rather than... Any, I mean, you can adopt any style they want, whether it's slashing strokes or little dots, but uh, courage is what you do with it. Uh, and I, w- I wish she had more courage and more of them, and that's what I meant by saying more of the discipline of Hans Hoffman. Uh-huh. Those I see the the uh, the bravery in the uh, I guess in a formal way. Isn't that then asking her to be a, a fundamentally different painter? You're, you're asking her to become a high modernist. Uh, well, or, or low, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, or Claude the Rain, or, or whatever. I mean, I, I'm hopelessly caught up in the past. I, I wish she looked at more at, at Corot. They look or like Claude Italian Coro, don't they? A little. I mean, those they yeah, thin yeah. strokes on, especially on the horizons. Well, the best ones do. But what about that portrait, David? Uh, well, that's not. I mean, the, the portraits <laughs> you know, are, I mean, are pure weaker. patheticism. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think she's. But doesn't that doesn't that isn't that telling? Isn't the fact that, that well, look, uh, Turner couldn't paint figures either. So I mean, I, the, you, there are many, there are great artists who, who who are bizarrely challenged when it comes to painting figures, and who nonetheless paint them and exhibit them. So yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I, this is I'm, I'm not making a case for her as a master, major or minor, but uh, mm. I know that eight out of ten of the paintings were very very pleasurable, and I know exactly where those pleasures came from, hmm. and that's what unfortunately prevents me from taking those pleasures seriously. Where, where do they come from? They come from that tradition of oh, American oh, 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 pictorialism oh, oh. I, I and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something like Alex Katz. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the cat is pure, 100%, and mm-hmm. Alex Katz from about 1953, but Katz mm-hmm. just took it into four or five major new places. Even mm-hmm. though Katz's paintings, I would, I would, you know, give my life to defend the honour of Katz's paintings in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, we wouldn't be... I wouldn't be in awe of Katz if he had painted the same paintings up to now. It's in, the, in the 1960s, there were radical breaks from, from exactly those delectations and pleasures. Mm. I think she's going like, to somewhere, Milton Avery. It's, you know, it's, um, although Avery is a more ambitious painter in, in even his least ambitious painting. Yeah. It's safe, easy, obvious painting. Mm-hmm. But Deborah, do you want to challenge that? Um... I think she's somebody who's off on her own and who, who isn't trying to, uh, to, be a, uh, to, to be head of the class and who has completely fulfilled her own ambitions. And I find that appealing about the work as well. Not everybody yes. has to strive to rewrite art history. Well, and it is... Our history is sort of circular, so maybe 20 years from now we're saying, wow, those were so radical, those paintings. They're not radical. They're, no, they're not rewriting art history in any way. But I, I think they seem... There's a certain light to them that I, well, I you know, find... Well, a painter a like Albert York uh, is also very mm. consciously not 
wanting to be a major mm. master and painting small paintings and sending them to his dealer in a brown envelope. Mm. And in a way, they've got something in common with those. And yet, you know, I, 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 I feel I should be, uh, you know, publicly... I find for mentioning those two names in one sentence because... No, but they both stand apart from tradition. They're on a branch off by themselves. No, She's not Deborah, trying I'd, say to... the, I'd say the categorically the opposite. They're both absolutely safely within tradition. Mm-hmm. York is more quirky and, and more mm-hmm. odd in the way he, he does tradition. Mm. York is like a sort of um, an outsider David Fertig or something. But um, uh, uh, it's, it's amazing that we're sitting there looking at the same paintings, both liking them, and you're saying she's an individualist and an outsider and she's not in the tradition. And I'm saying I can't like them that much because they're so within the tradition. Mm. One of us has got to be wrong. Well, you're both wrong. Listen. Okay, we're both wrong. There we are. Let's move on and see if we can... Both get it right with our final artist of the evening, who is Marilyn Minter. Stephen seemed worried about the uh, upper-middle-class privileged sensibility of being in Chatham. Well, we're, we're all given a taste of... Um, it haunted me to this day. ...upper-middle-class delectitude at uh, Salon 94, um, uh, where we saw Marilyn Minter. Uh, Marina Warner once described Lucian Freud as the slumming lord of uh, uh, painting. Um, uh, why do I mention that? Be- well, because uh, glamour and mud. I, I, um, uh, I must say I absolutely love this show. But as perhaps with Deborah I, I, and, and uh, Maureen Glace, I'm still working out why I loved it. Did you love it, uh, Stephen? Well, I loved uh, the, the interplay between abstraction and figuration, which is, um, it seems to me, a, a special uh, kind of um, characteristic of a lot of photorealism. I like how the scale disguises the subject matter in many of the paintings mm. and photographs, for that matter. I like how if you were to cover up uh, sometimes as, as little as... Uh, a, a quarter or a fifth of the of the image, it would it would fall almost immediately into abstraction. Um, I had uh, trouble with the 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 materiality of of the paintings. The photographs are are um, um, uh, it, seems, it seems to me the photographs and the paintings operate very differently, even though they're they're superficially very similar. Uh, the Anonymous surface of the photograph seems appropriate for this imagery. Um, the the kind of tortured, and we're told that this is some kind of uh, um, innovative technique that she's using with the enamel. Uh, I couldn't get a real clear description of that technique, but I don't think it. I don't think it. Um, uh, I don't think it doesn't seem appropriate to me for the subject yes. matter. Certainly, enamel on metal wood. But the surfaces are so uh, tortured and um, uh, conspicuous. It seems actually from a technical point of view that they them. are uh, literally digital in the sense that, uh, not in the sense of being uh, done on a computer, but in the sense that actually the paint is applied with the fingertip. Um, oh, digital, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I actually just saw her painting technique as a distraction and that these were actually photographs printed by an irregular 
in mm. manner, namely they were painted by finger. Mm. Um, would the, you agree with that, John? Assistant. Or would you? I mean, did you did you find that the surfaces as paintings, uh, as paint surfaces, they were intriguing and useful, or did you just, just feel these were images that you were engaging with? Oh well, I the images sort of I found myself resisting them a lot. I seemed to get a message to them about the exploitation of of, 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 of the glamour industry. Uh, as paintings, they were of, of some interest. They were uh, the big ones of the eyes, like almost like you know, galactic images with dayglow colors and so forth. And the, almost the concave uh, cliff of the eye socket. I mean, that was kind of nice. But I, I the imagery, uh, I suspected there was a message there. I was afraid either it was so obvious I, I got it within a second, or there was no message. <laughs> That, that dis- distracted me somewhat. I, I, I did, my favorite part was actually one line in the press release which said, uh, described the paintings as 10 foot long shoe fetish extravaganzas. <laughs> and I thought that was a... <laughs> a poetic flourish. <laughs> well, I did, it did. Okay, when I, when, can, may I weigh in? Please. When I went to Salon 94, it was closed, so I did not see this show, but I, I'm very familiar with the work. And um, to me, She's basically, she's almost like the Barbara Kruger of our time. Uh, the work is very polemical, political. We all like the idea of it, but there might be a limit to how long you could look at an individual image, and you don't get the feeling that she wants you to keep looking forever. Uh, she seems to be making some kind of statement. And um, on the plus side, I think the work is incredibly fresh. I was amazed when I learned how old she is. Because I, I thought she was, you know, it looks like the work of a 30-year-old artist. To her credit, it has incredible vigor, uh, she, but she's close to 60. Mm-hmm. And I also, the colors, because of all the lipstick, that gives, like Barbara Kruger, she's kind of a red, black, and white artist in many ways. You have the white skin, the red lipstick, mm-hmm. black mud, whatever. And those are kind of the colors of Russian constructivism and of political art. They have often been, historically. So I feel all that energy coming out of the work. I think she actually is of the same vintage as uh, Barbara Kruger, and, but yet when she first showed her paintings in the uh, 80s, uh, they were just absolutely pilloried mm. uh, by feminist critics because of their content, and she actually withdrew and re-emerged in time for the recent biennial. Uh, it was an image of hers that graced the cover. Mm. Um, I, I couldn't think of an artist I, I, would, I, would, I would resist a comparison of her to Barbara Kruger. Barbara Kruger is, is very uh, conceptual, very self-consciously using uh, a sort of Weimar, uh, Dada kind of uh, color scheme. Mm. Um, the, the color here is very rich, very sumptuous, very rococo and, and decadent. Um, I, I found that I wasn't uh, being clobbered over the head with a political message, that I was given a sense really of, uh, a sensation of, uh, a sensation a bit like looking at a Pietro Longhi painting of, of uh, uh, aristocrats in, uh, impoverished aristocrats in a crumbling Venice. That, but this was, uh, this was about, um, uh, you know, uh, this, this was about de- uh, uh, feminine identity kind of degrading or being degraded. Um, they were very suggestive and poetic, but they didn't seem to me to have a, a clear, obvious message, and that was entirely to their credit. Hmm. My only reservations about them was the technique. I love the photographs. I just wanted to see them as photographs. If she, ha- if she, if she doesn't really want to paint, then don't paint, or just find some 
there are so many technical means available to, to get a photographic image at a scale and with some texture if you need and want texture. Uh, just send it to a lab, dear, and you know, make, some, <laughs> make more images. That's my I must tell you that the gallery her. assistant, when we, when we were there, told us in her sort of uh, still being acquired English, uh, made a sort of a perhaps um, uh, unconscious re uh, revelation when she said that Marilyn Minter, when she has a photograph that she decides isn't good enough, then she makes a painting out of it. Well, and, and she does do uh, those fashion shoots with the wet shoes, except it's clean water instead of muddy water. So uh, ah. it's a remarkable connection between her, her professional glamour, ah. real professional I think, work. I think, Stephen, though, in fairness, maybe it was broken English, but what uh, Jeannie Greenberg said to me is that if she makes a photograph and it's perfect as a and it's a perfect photograph, she leaves it as a photograph. It's only if there's a an ambiguity in the photograph that she feels the need to make it into a painting. Right. Well, well that would be the polished that's the, sort of way of, that's of the, expressing the same that's thought. The, well, it, no, it's very interesting <laughs> because, I, I mean, painters sit and rework paintings for years. But if you're a photographer, you can't sit and rework a corner well, you, of the photograph. You can now in Photoshop. Well, if you're not going to, you know, confine yourself to digital photography. So I think that's interesting that it leads into painting. Why do you say painting. confine yourself? To digital, Isn't digital photography a great liberation and an opening up into a brave new world? Oh, I didn't know you enjoyed it so much. Uh -huh. okay. uh, no, but I, I think that's interesting that, that a picture could lead to a painting that mm. shows a, that she's, uh, I, I don't know what it shows, but that you certainly can't hold it against her. Well, there's so much traffic in the other direction, isn't there? Yeah, uh, good Photographs point. that are becoming paintings. Right. That, uh, but, but also, there's, uh, she's a part of an illustrious tradition. Some of my favorite painters from uh, Degas and uh, as, as Alexi Wirth has shown, Manet and uh, uh, Sickert, of course, have, have made paintings from photographs. So oh. it's, it's not a new phenomenon. But could I, speaking of fetishes, I think they were at one point uh, the fetishes of, say, Sheila or Klimt are yes. more interesting to me, but, but I'm, that's, again, approaching this from a kind of old-fashioned uh, viewpoint, perhaps. Or Aang is even more interesting because he doesn't even, isn't even aware of his fetishes. So seeing these... These paintings to me were almost fetishes about fetishes, which was... Mm. Uh, so, so they're slightly clichéd because of the fetish of the shoe and the high heel and the stocking and what have you? Well, uh, it wasn't... wasn't a, well, I think the cliché was maybe part of it. it. It was... I felt like it was clobbered over the head by, oh. by, by the fetish. I'm not sure the language of glamour is the best way to discuss deep things about f uh, fetishes or anything else, but maybe that's a prejudice I have against, against yes. fashion. I, there's a lot of glamour and fashion in Klimt, though, isn't there? Well, but a lot, lot else, too. Uh, uh, so the, the, the Klimt wouldn't be the better for the glamour. The glamour is uh, part of him, but not the... Right. Not the... Well, I think it's a good time to have the audience uh, sound off and let us know uh, how we coped with the last three artists, and then we can hit, hit the road. Um, uh, let's uh, uh, get that mic out again, please, if we could, for um, some, some last words from our audience. Uh, uh, hands, please. Anybody wish to? Yes, uh, Penny. Um, do you think that those small landscape paintings would have been as appealing had they been 24 by 30 or 30 by 40? I don't. So their appeal, do you, the question is, is, is the appeal mortgaged to the scale? That's, I think that's a really good point. Um, 
But can you explain that? Why does the smallness make them more appealing? Because it doesn't seem like they're asking for a lot of our attention. There's something so modest about the whole enterprise. Isn't and it to it, do it's with not the that they're cute. They're not cute. No. But no. you look at them and they say, you look and you say, this is a small painting. You look at an Alex Katz small collage and they could be right. four times the size. Right. And, and these I don't think would be. I, I think the whole, the, her, her, her work, there's a certain humility about it that's pretty rare. We used to call them one-shot one paintings in, uh, in, in art camp. Mm -hmm. We would do landscape paintings like that and they were called, and the idea was see what you can do in one go, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I think a lot of their, a lot of their, uh, what's startling about them is their, humility is a good word, their um, un, 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 unpretentiousness, mm. unassumingness, but um, that's, that's thin, I mean, that's just thin gruel as far as I'm concerned. That does not, does not go very far. Oh, well, surely, I mean, one shot is just, really nice. isn't one shot just a mean American way of saying a la prima, which is the Italian, which means the same thing, but uh, it sounds so much better in Italian, doesn't it? I mean, um, one shot is, it means that it's, it's authentic and fresh and that you haven't worked it. I mean, anything that you can make as a put-down to a painting could also be a compliment to it. I love the freshness of them, and I think the scale is, is fundamental to the way we enjoy them. Um, and if she wanted to make a bigger painting, I assume she would employ a different palette, a different sensibility, or a different uh, kind of brushstroke. But I... I'm happy to take them as they come. Yeah, and small paintings can feel big, too. And a handful of them did for me. Most didn't. Something uh, internal in the painting can, has okay. to do with the way it feels. Okay. Yes, next person. Uh, here, the lady. Uh, the lady first, please. Yes. If you'd like to speak. Yeah, well, I wanted to mention that it's a, they are folkloristic with their scale. Mm -hmm. Something very intimate and relating to... American folklore, and I think that's why they couldn't be enlarged, mm. and that's what the, that's, uh, their attractiveness is based on it. That's, that's a sound observation, although quilts are also folkloristic, and they can be quite large. But uh, point taken. Uh, Alexi, yes? I had a quick question about the Fiona ratio, which I haven't yet seen, but I, I like that work in general, but I also feel like I like a kind of multicultural high-low icon soup whenever I see it. And I'm not sure how, I mean, the, the subject of the work seems to be pluralism, in, and that's a reasonably honorable, but very general subject. And my question is, do the panelists feel like she has a distinctive take on that subject matter? Well, that was, that's the key issue in the, mm -hmm. in the show, as far as I'm concerned, you know. I mean, uh, their, uh, uh, their uh, soup, you said, uh, that's a good word for it. To me, the, the, she runs into trouble by um, failing to um, really describe or indicate what, what the criterion are, criteria are for, for uh, the images that she's using. I don't think there's a real core sensibility other than pastiche for its own sake that emerges from these. I don't find them that pluralistic or open. I think they're about something very specific, um, which is feminized abex. She's taking abstract painting, which is traditionally seen as very macho, and, and doing all this girl's bedroom stuff to it with the de decals and, and the pink and the purple, and um, kind of asking sweetly, is there a place for me? In this, in this universe of, uh, of, of macho guys. 
I would have thought that Alexei should have noticed that the uh, multicultural high-low soup is, is something that has many chefs uh, working at it at the moment. Uh, uh, Sigmar Polka, Albert Olin, etc., etc., etc. But uh, John... <laughs> he doesn't uh, have a mic. You can't yell he at doesn't him. He doesn't have a mic. Okay. Yeah, but yes, true, then he would yell at you and say... <laughs> Uh, well, well, I uh, about the high-low thing. I'm not sure I saw that. Uh, uh, actually, my, my uh, one of the parts I liked most was some accidental details. I felt there's a degree of control to the way these images were put together, which I found a little off-putting. But in one, there is a, a, a drop of water, mud had dropped in the water, and it must have been fast film, so it raised this little crown of a of a splash, mm-hmm. and it was just frozen there. And it seems so mm-hmm. sort of spontaneous and. And frozen yes. at the same time. She's mm. very decorative, basically, mm. is what we're all saying in different ways. But isn't, mm-hmm. didn't Greenberg kind of poison the waters in a way by saying that you know, it's, it's, it's avant-garde or kitsch? And therefore, abstract expressionism is the avant-garde. It will have no, no truck with kitsch. And yet, right from the outset, you know, abstract art from, from the uh, collage of Picasso and Braque through uh, uh, de Kooning's appropriation of uh, pin-ups and things, uh, you know, Gerard Murphy and Stuart Davis, uh, pioneers of American abstraction, and at the same time pioneers in a way of American pop art. I think that the, uh, there's, a, there's a long and noble history of abstractionists helping themselves to aspects of popular culture and just throwing it into the soup. <laughs> Uh, you're looking at me as if our friendship's over. I, uh, but, but thank you for your question. And thank, thank everybody for their question. And uh, uh, have a good night. Thank you.